0: Good morning everyone i 'm asking the Lord for a little bit of energy this morning because uh, it 's been a busy weekend at faith or related to faith I should say, as uh, Pastor Tom mentioned already, we had a very successful and incredible night to shine um, experience all uh, albeit extremely different um, and I'm going to save the real update for those that were there and able to witness it firsthand. And we had other things we were getting ready for within the church. And so I couldn't um, really make it. I saw it from the building, but it was way far away. And I'm just watching 50 or so people from faith in like, what, two degree weather? Out there putting things together, building tents, greeting people with energy and And I'm just amazed. Um, My, I'm just going to warn you now, as my, uh, prayer buddies, uh, found out this morning as we were together, my emotions are a little, uh, you know, frail at the moment. So I don't mean to be weepy like I care about people. Please don't get that impression. I'm just tired. I don't want to, I don't want to mislead you, but it's really, really inspiring to see, uh, what people were willing to sacrifice to do something like that for, for many who, um, Maybe uh, won't recognize the sacrifice if that makes any sense. You know, appreciate it, yes, but not recognize all that goes into it and and go behind it and all these kinds of things. And so, and we're making friends all the time because of our involvement in Night to Shine, and we're meeting new faces and all these kinds of things. So it's really uh just an incredible incredible event uh, for us to be able to continue to do and so my my uh, uh, profound appreciation goes out to all of you that that put it together and I can't wait to see it celebrated even bigger um, next week hopefully lord willing so um, and then uh what I was doing uh in the building was getting the wedding party ready for Nate and Libby Conley's uh wedding that took place in the Bangor area last night And so, uh, that was an incredible thing to be a part of. And, um, you know, I've had the privilege of watching, uh, Nate and Libby only recently sort of coming together in their, uh, preparation for their wedding, but they've been a couple now for quite some time. We've known Libby since she was, I don't know if the Phillips kids have ever been this short but i know she was or somewhere around this height when i first met libby and just watch her grow up to become the beautiful woman that she is inside and out and she was so well um represented and and uh, just her friends and family just so proud of her and getting to know nate recently though he's been a part of faith now for many years and uh, just such a solid man and a, a godly man who adores Libby. And so it's just this really special thing to be a part of. And, and of course the families were all in and the celebration was incredible and the, the toasts were, were beautiful and everything. And then they surprised Libby and Nate with the family and the friends, surprised them with, you know, the something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, right? And they they kind of messed around with the arrangement of that, and they and and then half the worship team here and their other friends and all this kind of stuff surprised the couple with. um, They had worked out all this music to match those categories, and I won't go into all of it, but it was it was so impressive, and and there wasn't really a dry eye in the room, and then her brother John who we just had lead us in that last song of worship and everything just wrote an incredible song for his sister and now brother-in-law and all pointing to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and and a prayerful hope that they continue to look to the Lord for everything that he's and we're we're just blown away and just really so I'm just kind of <laughs> so tomorrow this morning Bear with me. The Lord had been preparing something for this weekend that I didn't see coming. I would like to say that this was all orchestrated on purpose, but uh, it really just—we're not that slick. A lot of times, and I don't mean this to sound, you know, braggy or anything, or braggadocious. Some of my people's favorite word now, um, you know. Sometimes people say, "Boy, at faith, that looks like you've really like laid out all the details." And it's like, "No, we don't." I'll give you a for instance. So, um, I knew John and Martha were doing their testimony, and quite frankly, I'd kind of lost track of which weekend it was going to be. We talked from time to time, but then my head is somewhere else. Pastor Tom organizes all those things, um, and um, and then I knew, of course, I was participating in a wedding. Um, but and then I knew I was preaching out of John. But I didn't know how all three of those things would come together for us this morning. Because as we get to John chapter 2, Jesus is performing his first miracle at the wedding in Cana. How amazing is God? And so I'm, my head's been kind of soaking in all this stuff about marriage and, and weddings and all that stuff. And, and I understand that when we talk about these things, it can be a bit of a sensitive topic for some. Because for some of us, the, the wedding or the marriage experience does not go the way our dreams had, had um, uh, uh, planned for us. And, and sometimes marriage, uh, the thought of it, uh, doesn't bring us um, a happy feeling or doesn't encourage us. But I also see so many people as they walk with the Lord, if marriage hasn't treated them that well, they still celebrate what others might potentially be able to experience. That they're able to, in a sense, disconnect some of their heartache and then wish and hope for the best because others are doing it the way that the Lord would have them do it. And so I hope to communicate this morning as we go through the scriptures that marriage is for all. And that Jesus did the miracle he did to make an extremely profound point about what you and I have for a future in him where our joy is supposed to come from. The title of the message this morning is that Jesus is our joy supplier. And I believe he's going to demonstrate it for us in this miracle that he performs at this wedding. Now, it's fun to get ready for the ceremony. It's incredible to see all the different details that come together. And I'm, I'm always impressed at the way some people pull things together. I was, I was touched that Nate and Libby, um, arranged their, their whole wedding just to please me. They, they had Lord of the Rings soundtrack music that they, they had people on strings playing the, the thing, the themes from Lord of the Rings and everything. I was like, you did this just for me? That's incredible. No, they didn't. They're geeks too. And, uh, and, and, and they, all the detail. And then, like I said, the family surprising them and all the pieces coming together and the profound words that the dads were able to share as they closed the, the whole thing out in prayer. And you see all that goes into it and you go, this is the way it should be, right? Decorations and bride looks beautiful. And as some of our wedding experiences, right? Don't they, they're always filled with drama somewhere. Someone's got to make it about them somewhere. So I always give this little speech to the wedding party on rehearsal night. I was like, tomorrow's about these two. Don't make it about you. Don't do anything stupid tonight. Don't be late tomorrow. Don't bring your stuff. You know, you have to talk people through because for whatever reason, there's so much pressure. There's nerves. There's anxiety. There's all this stuff that gets all loaded into this one special day. We treat it very seriously. I remember when my wife and I were getting ready to get married uh, some of you were introduced to my pastor that was down in Boston at Vernon's funeral several years ago. And I refer to him as the Boston-accented Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, he's got that whole attitude about him, you know, and everything. And so he told us, when we were, when Chris and I were getting ready for our wedding many years ago, um, he said, I'm not saying if things go wrong, but when things go wrong, we're going to roll with it. And I'm like, what does he mean? What's going to happen? And everything happened at mine and Chris's wedding. We love sharing this story with the couples that were doing pre-marriage counseling. I can't go into all the details, but, but, um, let's just say, um, uh, of course the best man passes out, uh, when he comes to, he's, he's upset and embarrassed with himself, kind of chucks the ring. We have to go look for it and everything. And, um, really one of my best friends, sweetest guy in the world, but, um, Anyway, uh, and he just can't seem to live it down. I feel so terrible for him. But anyway, it happened, right? And then um, I went to surprise Chris with a song. And and I don't know if any of you remember cassettes. But that's what we relied on then. And she didn't know it was coming. And, and you know, while we're praying, the pastor's praying, someone puts a microphone in front of me. And then we, we say amen. And she looks up and I've got this microphone. I'm staring at her with a goofy smile. And I'm like, this is going to be romantic and beautiful. She's going to melt. Instead, the tape nearly melted, so he he hits play, and it's like, "Doom, doom <laughs> take two. So fortunately, my guy like gets the pencils out, you know, <laughs> fixes the cassette, puts it back in, hits play, and I was able to sing the song, got through it. She didn't shed one tear. She's like, <laughs> I'm like, this does not have the impact I was hoping it would have." Se- several other things in the ceremony itself happen, but we get to the reception, you know, cutting the cakes, the big deal and stuff. And so they hand us our knife and our friends had purchased the cake for us. I said I wouldn't go into all this detail. I'm going to try to trim off some on the back end of this, but... Uh, uh, our friends have purchased a cake. It was their gift to us and everything. They had a place in, in, uh, Somerville, Mass that they just really relied on. They've had great experience with this bakery. They're like, you're gonna love it. We're like, we trust you. It's fine. No problem. So we go to cut the cake and they hand us the, the knife and we're going, can't quite get through it. And in my mind, you know how sometimes they have like the cardboard under the frosting or something? I'm like, maybe, is there, what's going on here? And then you're like, oh, silly us, we had the knife upside down." But it's cake. You should be able to cut through it with a spoon, right? So we flip it over, and I'm literally sawing my cake. <laughs> you know? And we're trying not to talk to each other about it because everyone's watching. A couple hundred people there, and we take this thing, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to give it to her. And she starts choking on it. She's gagging because of all the crust and all that sort of stuff. Turns out this this bakery had a had a fire couple weeks previous and they had like their cousins and their everyone coming and running the show and knew nothing about baking cakes they scorched the cake and just slapped frosting on it and everything had no idea and stuff our friends felt mortified they went and got a refund and everything but oh and I forgot to mention they didn't even put any flowers or decoration on the cake so they went outside and started grabbing their ants crawling all over it beautiful beautiful we made several of, several of our own mistakes and everything. We, For whatever reason, we kind of communicated to those that were receiving the cards and stuff as they were coming in. You know, there was this nice basket, a display. You're like, oh, this is for the bride and groom and everything. They were ripping those things open immediately to take the cash out and set them over here. And everyone's just like, what is going on? <laughs> Find out about this later. And you're like, I think there was a miscommunication there. It was the weirdest, weirdest thing. Not if things go wrong, but when things go wrong, we're gonna roll with it. And in roll with it, we did. All we cared about was getting hitched. Fortunately for me, I married a woman who was very practical, very sensible, and though she'd been dreaming about her wedding, she didn't need any of the frills, she didn't need all that. She was not, there wasn't an ounce of mascara that ran because of all the things that, that went wrong that day. I don't know why, but she was just happy to be married. And so I ran with it and I took it. It's important to see what marriage, what, what the wedding is really intended for, what it points towards, what it's supposed to be experienced, how it's supposed to be experienced for the rest of your lives together. And I find it interesting that Jesus is now launching. He's sort of letting the world know, and, and, but in a very micro way here as we come to John chapter 2, he's letting the world know what he's capable of. You think about a campaign like in politics or something. And, and, and the very first speech, the, the first poster, the first commercial, all of those things say a lot about what your platform is going to be. And so many campaigns are killed right out of the gate because they botch the launch. And they have to explain themselves. And sometimes they just never recover. I find it interesting that Jesus launches his, his claim to be Messiah, if you will, his demonstration of being the Son of God at a wedding. And doing it by this thing that we call turning the water into wine. I like to look at it as Jesus chose to do his first miracle in a way that would keep the party going. I think that tells us a little bit about who our Savior was. That he is, yes, fully God, but he is fully man. And he was there for the celebration. And there was a threat that that celebration wasn't going to continue. And he's like, I got this. We got to keep the party going. It's been suggested that because he chose this event, that it was his endorsement. It was God's endorsement on the institution of marriage. It's I'm going to launch here because I want you to know how important we believe God, the Trinity, believes in this institution of marriage. I think there's a lot of merit to that, but I think it even goes further than that. Oh, That was a sip of intrigue, wasn't it? John tells us what the outcome of this miracle was, and so we'll give it a spoiler alert here. Um, But before we get to verse 11 in our text, I want to just remind us what John already told us a couple of months ago when we looked way back in John 20. Verse 31, that he wrote these things down so that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says everything I'm recording is pointing to that end so that you see Jesus for who he is. And that you believe in his name, and when we believe in his name, we are granted eternal life. He said, so it's all moving in that direction. So why would we think that this miracle would have any less impact? Sure enough, he says in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Before we even get into the text, it's important for us to understand that his audience, though he's in a probably a crowded wedding and a lot going on in a big celebration, his audience for this miracle is just a small sub-segment of the audience there. Just the dudes that came with him to be at this wedding. So as we look at our text in, uh beginning in verse one, I want to just ask a couple of questions in this test uh, text. The first is, is it possible that this miracle was was given uh, to us or was demonstrated to prove that Jesus can cover our shame? I want you to see that angle of shame as we start reading through the text together, beginning in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Third day, meeting, three days after his encounter with Nathaniel. Remember last week as he's like lining up his disciples and he's answering their questions, proving to, to them and Nathaniel specifically, I know who you are. I know where you are studying. I know what you're cranked up about. And so on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary's there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. That should indicate to us probably there's a family connection or close friends going on here. When the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, which is actually sort of a distant uh, title of respect. It's not, oh, ma, or anything like that, but it's, it's kind of like, ma'am. kind of stop you in your tracks so let's not culturally read too much into this for us today woman he's not speaking down to her but he says what does this have to do with me my hour is not yet come his mother said to the servants do whatever he tells you so there's a lot interesting turns going on here there's some gaps that we might need to Fill in as we look at this, but but I want us to think just a little bit about where does where does shame show up in this story already? This isn't just a a problem of maybe running out of supply, in the way that you and I might feel some embarrassment if we were hosting our own wedding, and and in these days in the Jewish wedding it was actually the bridegroom who was responsible for paying for the party, and uh, and and which I'm I'm. Saddened that we no longer have that practice as I am the proud father of seven daughters and two boys. I would have loved to have th- this to have been in reverse. But unfortunately, we don't. The bridegroom and his family covered the expenses of a week long celebration. It, this isn't just you show up on Saturday and you have a great time. In fact, a Wednesday wedding was for two virgins coming together. Or a Thursday wedding was uh, most commonly for a widowed person getting remarried. That kind of thing. And so this party started a week before, and the expectation was you're going to have the supplies. You're not going to run out. And, and it was such a social embarrassment if you were to if you were to uh, run short that they would not hear the end of it forever. You could be like you know, 30 years down the road, having a great marriage, having raised your kids, they're all out of the house, and people still in the community. Oh, there's empty pots over there. Never letting you off the hook. It even goes further than that. That some, and we all have these people in our family, right? Some people just shows up, just show up for the party. They expect to be entertained. It's about me, you know. I'm I'm here to get fishnicked. nicked. Uh, and 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 if you don't provide that for me, I'm gonna say, well, it was a terrible wedding. Well, that was going on then, but they would back it up with even a legal threat. They would say, uh, we were so offended by you not having enough wine and supplies and everything. We're going to take legal action against the bridegroom. You believe it? So when Mary comes up and says, they have no wine. Everybody, if they had heard that, sounds like she was saying it privately to Jesus. But if everybody, the record would have stopped. Everyone would have looked up, what? This is a big deal to have these. Things run dry. So Mary, I think, is expressing some relatable anxiety. She's coming to the one who might be able to do something about it, and she's just saying it with one simple statement. They have no wine. There, there's perhaps, I want to speculate just a little bit, there's perhaps a feeling on Mary's part. I gave birth to the Son of God. I know he's something special. It was announced to me by an angel though we haven't seen any demonstrations of those powers yet, don't believe what you hear from what would be the apocryphal books that are in some faith traditions and stuff like that that say that Jesus was, I think, making things levitate at two years old and all that kind of stuff that's not recorded in Scripture. And and Jesus is performing this first miracle, so she has no real experience with what he's capable of, but she knows he must be able to do something. Now, Mary has been accused and doubted speculated against for 30 years. She had to eventually let it be known to the people in her town that she was having a child out of wedlock. And even though she was engaged to Joseph, Joseph's like, not my kid. I did not do this. And Mary is having having to say, no, but I'm telling you, the angel came. I'm telling you, this is legitimate. I'm telling you he is the son of God. And everyone's like, don't see it. So do you think maybe she's at this wedding going, uh, Jesus, there's uh, maybe this was like one in 10 uh, of the things that she asked him to do this week. Uh, Jesus, you know, there's um there's a, a flood and we can't get our cars through. Do you think you could, you know, do that kind of thing or, you know, and she comes up and she says, uh, Jesus, there's no there's no more wine. I don't know. I don't know if she thought or she knew or she was thinking now would be a good time for you to be you. I don't know. I find it interesting to picture this whole scenario and how it could go. I want to see this as like this um, kind of Jewish mom guilt going on. She's like, Jesus, they have no wine. And he's like, well, mom, what do you want me to do about it? And then she looks at him, turns around, tell him whatever, do whatever he tells you to do. Like, I know I only had to say it once my son's going to do. It. I want to think that but that's not what's going on here. It's more profound than that. This isn't Mary manipulating Jesus' feelings. It isn't her getting her way. She simply presents the problem. Jesus, because he cares about humanity, knows this is really a big deal. This is going to stop the celebration. This is before it got to its climax. We're not even going to be able to see this wedding and it not be totally tainted by this faux pas. She says they ran out of wine. Maybe... Uh, Mary has some responsibility in this. Maybe she's helping. She's doting on the details and running around and she's going, Jesus, there's no wine. And she feels like I don't want my cousins or my friends or anything like that to be ashamed or embarrassed. They don't deserve this. Who knows? There could be a whole lot in that. But there's something for you and I to relate to a little bit is that when our moment of panic hits, do we know how to bring the need to Jesus? Every need So Jesus responds, but he, he responds by questioning her request. And Jesus, anytime he asks a question, he most often answers questions with questions. He's always making a bigger point. Like I said, this is not exasperated Jesus coming out who just wanted to go to a party and be left alone. I'm not supposed to be Messiah yet. Leave me alone. This is not what he's saying. Woman, why are you involving me? What does this, what do you think this has to do with me? No. Ma'am, I want to hear it from your lips. What do you think this has to do with me? Why, why did you bring this to me? Do you think I could do something about this? He says, my hour, which is always in reference to his death, my hour has not yet come. So my hour being his, his glorification, Jesus knows he's come here to die. He knows that death will not be the end, that he will be resurrected, uh, validating all of his claims that he's the son of God. My hour, this whole event of what I came for hasn't arrived yet. Mary, are you sure you're not getting ahead of God's plan? Is another way of asking that question. But I still think the wisest question that we can ask is the question that Jesus is asking. What does this, fill in the blank, anything, have to do with Jesus? Does, does the running out of wine really involve the Son of God, the one who's keeping the planet spinning and all those things going? Does this kind of thing really matter to Jesus? Does this matter to God? Jesus thinks it does. And he's asking the question to make that point. And what does Mary do? She kind of puts her head down, do whatever he tells you. She's reminded He's on a bigger agenda than than mine. I, I care about the wine, but he always knows what he's up to. He always knows what we need. You know what? Whatever he's going to do with this, whether he says we're going to pass on this, boys, or we're moving forward, do whatever he tells you to do. Our- Point number three, if you're following along in notes, I've tried making several points that I wanted to make a little bit clearer for us. These are sort of our application points, if you will, this morning. To take a cue from Mary's page and learn to react obediently. This is the key to you and I battling our anxieties, whatever forms they take subtly underneath, whether we recognize it or not, that our anxieties are fueled or launched or, or maybe even birthed by our desire to control outcomes. You ever notice how some people that are just so well-meaning for others' behalf, like Mary, I don't want these guys to, to lose out. I don't want them to be embarrassed at their thing. They still have good reasons for being anxious because they care about other people. But what they're, what they're really doing is wanting to control an outcome. This can't fail. This won't happen on my watch. This is what anxiety is, is it's, it's our desire to control the things that really are outside of our control. And it seems as though Mary figures that out in an instant. I'm relinquishing responsibility. It's on him, whatever he does with it, as it always has been. Let's just talk about this before we go into how the the miracle plays out and what it's happening i think it's important for us just to set up our mindset in how we receive the information about miracles if you've been around the church for any length of time if you've been listening to christian music for any length of time if you've searched for book titles out there in the christian atmosphere and stuff you you'd, you'd know for sure that what we have is this growing movement towards seeking a miracle that God's going to give me my breakthrough, that he's going to give me, excuse me, my victory, that he is going to do the thing that is so unmistakable that he acted in a supernatural way. There is a clamoring and a craving for a sign. There's a a clamoring for, for a miracle, something that we can say tangibly, God visited me or my situation. So since it's everywhere, I think it's important to just throw out a few statements. And I want to do this carefully because um, I'm not saying what our ears will think I'm saying first. So hopefully I can clarify. In this particular moment, John refers to what's about to happen or what has happened as a sign. It signifies something. In a lot of other passages of scripture in the gospels, when we see the, the miracles come out, and John only mentions a handful of them. A fraction of all the miracles that Jesus did. He's reducing things to the personal. And, uh, and, and as he's doing that, he, he often refers to, as the other writers do, uh, showing that it was great demonstrations of power, the kind of thing the rest of the crowd would go, oh, and back up. And they, it would be unmistakable that this guy's got something different. He must be, he must be something, uh, close to what he claims to be. But he says this miracle, a little bit more subtly, was a sign. It pointed. To something. Not this bold demonstration of tremendous power, although what he does with the water has to be powerful. Instead, he's localizing it. He's demonstrating to his disciples that he was the legitimate son of God. He's confirming for them the decision you made to follow me in our text from uh, uh, last two weeks ago. Our, 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 your decision to follow me was the right one. We're just getting started, we're just getting warmed up and like we said in verse 11 that worked for them they started to believe to a greater extent and that this sign was also perhaps pointing towards a deeper picture and i and I, I don't i don't know even why know why i said the word perhaps because things in the scriptures are there on purpose and there's so much imagery and there's so many things that those much smarter than me can study and pull out. And then we study these things and we research them when we see the grand plan that the Lord was unfolding in some of the simplest details in these stories. That Jesus' sign of doing this water, uh, water into wine is pointing towards a deeper picture. What we're going to see in the scriptures is that wine always shows up, particularly in the, in the Old Testament, shows up as a symbol of joy. Remember we said the title of our message this morning is that Jesus is the supplier of joy. The problem with our view of miracles and what we're looking for and why mankind is so quick to proclaim uh, you know, or, or to beg God for them is because we misuse this idea of what a miracle is for. What is it supposed to be pointing to? What is it supposed to be supplying in the end? We don't really think about that as a people because we just want to see the demonstration or we want the benefit of what's about to happen. But Jesus warned in Matthew 12, 39, that an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That doesn't necessarily mean that if you want God to do a miracle in your life that you're somehow wicked, It just means that's the generation we belong to. And if we're not careful, we could be looking for the things that we want to use for our selfish pleasures and pursuits, as opposed to what God would really be intending to do with any act that he does. We get mixed up with miracles. We overblown natural events. If you've witnessed the birth of a child or you've seen the kind of the biology of how the baby is formed in the womb and everything, what do we always say? That is a miracle. But it's happened billions and billions of times over for for centuries, for millennia. This is a natural event that, yes, as we look at it and we go that there's to us, there's some essence of miracle and mind blowing, whatever. But God says this is part of the created order. I, I set this in motion and this is nothing for me. But then when God does something out of the ordinary or out of the natural realm or something, we find ways to explain it away. There's no way he turned the simple six jug- jugs of water into wine. He had Kool-Aid packets in the back of his robe. We know he did. You know, he can do all those other things that blow our mind, and yet he does the one thing that we don't understand, and we say, "Ah, oh, there's got to be an explanation. So we've got to be careful from the human perspective is that the more of a good thing we get, the less that we value it. So I have a concern for Christianity in our day and age. Where every weekend, every worship service, every prayer session is supposed to result in something miraculous. I wonder if we were intended to have that much demonstrated to us. I wonder if we were supposed to experience God in such miraculous outside of the natural order ways that, that we wouldn't start to diminish how incredible it is when it happens. And so I just say these things to help us put some some better lenses on the way that we view the world and hear things coming from our own people as far as what we're always looking for and the breakthroughs and the victories and all that kind of stuff. In other words, we could ask the question, what message, because if the if the miracle is for a sign, what message would a miracle authenticate that isn't already validated in Scripture? Well, I asked Jesus for a breakthrough because I felt distant from him and I just want to see his glory. I just want to know he's walking with me and stuff. And so it would tell me he's real. And yet the scriptures, however many thousands of pages we have here, say he's real. And we we obsess about the thing he has not yet done instead of trusting and believing in the things that he has already done. Don't get me wrong. If something goes catastrophically wrong in my life and I'm nervous or I'm scared, I'm begging God for a miracle. I'm, I'm not. Jesus and his ability to perform a miracle is not on trial in my questioning. It's our desire to have them and needing confirmation of our experience that he's real and that he saved us and all that sort of stuff by the things that we can see and feel. It's a really slippery slope. And instead, I think Jesus is coming to do something else. And we're going to see it here in this miracle. I want to just ask the second question. Is it possible that this miracle demonstrates that Jesus delivers complete joy? Is it possible that that's what's happening here in this text? Let's pick back up in verse 6. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with waters, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast, that's really like kind of a a head caterer in our language. It's not like, you know, the bridegroom or anybody like that. It's somebody who's there to make sure that the food is good. The wine is supplied, all those kinds of things. So when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, remember the audience is small that witnessed the miracle, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, you know, everybody serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely or they've had a lot of it, then the poor wine because they won't know the difference. But you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs as we saw that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now I just got to go through a couple of kind of quick hits in this text as we get ready to wrap this up. They, These vessels, these six vessels pots are vessels of purification so it's quite customary in their religious tradition before they were going into the ceremony they had these six options of jars to purify themselves to clean their hands it's not just to disinfect or to get the dust off them it's really because it's a a, it's a it's an expression of we've allowed the lord to clean us up so that we can be present in this holy occasion but you notice it's being done on the outside Right. So I'm using this water to wash my hands and to clean up the outside of me so that I can be a part of this uh, holy ceremony. I think there's a lot of sincerity in that. And sometimes we're on the the other side looking back and say, well, that seems short sighted. That seems silly. But to them, they were very sincere. I want to honor this tradition. I want to be ready. I want to be clean. I want to be pure before God and before these witnesses and all these kinds of things. So they would go through all that. They'd be very sincere about their purification. The text tells us here that there are sticks, uh six stone jars and and even they were so um uh uh they were so sincere about this that they didn't even want to use the kinds of earthenware that they would make themselves. They needed it to be the stone that would have been something that the Lord had created because they thought the earthenware since it was made by man's hands was a little bit more prone to get some of the contaminants in. A little bit more prone to have the dirt seep through or something. They didn't trust the work of their own hands. They wanted to trust the work of the hands of God. You can hear all the sincerity in this. And there's six of them. And the text tells us we're looking at about 120 to 180 gallons of water. You know, maybe Jesus, as he turns this to wine... Certainly, the they had been working on this feast now through, for many days, and, the, and, and now they're going to get a whole new set of reserves, so they're not going to drink through all of that by the time the feast is over. Maybe it's a, it's a way of saying to the bride and groom or to anybody else, I will actually give you more than you can take. And, and maybe practically speaking, bride and groom are like, sweet, we're sitting on all the value of this wine. We can sell it, make a profit, pay for this wedding, and that cousin whatever that drank us out of house and home. Who knows what Jesus was up to as far as that's concerned, but it's clear that the amount is over the top. Jesus says, I want you to fill this, these jars. I mean, I'm sorry, this, these stone vessels to the brim. Partially, maybe so that no one would say, oh yeah, he, he, he uh, stuck something down in there. It was halfway. And so he did some trick and it turned into wine or something. Or he opened the Kool-Aid packet and did his thing. But, but I think it's actually, cause Jesus doesn't do anything by mistake. It's, it's a full picture. We're not short changing anything here. I want you to take these jars. I want you to fill them all the way to the brim. And then the headmaster, the, the master of the feast, the head waiter or whatever you want to call him, head caterer, he says out loud, cause you would imagine he's been doing this for a while, right? He's probably, this is his third wedding this, this month or something like that. And he's going, this is the good stuff. He doesn't say it's the best I've ever had or anything, but he says, this is pretty amazing. You see all that Jesus is putting into this. He's not just doing something. Yeah, give him something to shut him up. My mom's bugging me again, you know, embarrassed in front of his friends. None of that. All of this is deliberate. All of this has this um, imagery that's being built. Of what is Jesus up to? Why is he choosing this time to do what he's doing? Let's wrap all this up. Let's bring this picture home. In the beginning, God created male, and he hadn't created female yet, right? We were able to talk about this in the wedding yesterday, that God put Adam in the midst of perfection, and yet he was still lonely, He was missing his counterpart. He saw it in all the animals. God was saying for everything that he made, it's good, it's good, it's good. He was like having this cadence, this rhythm. Everything was good until he saw that man was alone. It's not like it occurred to God, but he did this to make a very profound point. It was the first time he said something in his creation was not good. And it's not because he made a mistake, but because he wasn't done yet. This isn't complete yet. And Adam started to recognize it as he saw, I'm by myself. There's nobody like me, my counter. So God provides her for him. And then we see in the Old Testament as God is being portrayed to his people, the children of Israel, we always think of him as father, of course. We know that he's our king. We know he's all those things. He has authority. He has rule. He has reign. He has all this. But he himself also refers to him as the bridegroom. He's communicating to the people that he is redeeming and restoring that I want a relationship with you that looks like what I established with Adam and Eve but just pure and perfect when, when they don't hold up their end of the bargain and they can continually just kind of kick dirt in his face and everything. He even writes them a certificate of divorce. I'm putting you out, but when you come back, I'll take you. I'm not replacing you. Come back to me. Marriage is God's picture of his relationship to the church. And then we start getting into the New Testament. It's colored for us beautifully, the writings of Paul in Ephesians 5, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul is helping us understand that there's something bigger that God wanted to do. Rather than just give Adam somebody to hang out with, he said, my whole picture of how I plan to restore this whole thing is going to come through this institution. So Jesus is at this wedding, yes, to endorse us, saying marriage is good to the Lord, but he's also saying it's because of how I intend to relate to those who will be my bride. The author of our gospel, John, also wrote for us the book of Revelation. And in nineteen Revelation 19, 6 through 9 he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. You can hear a crowd, he says, like the roaring of many waters and like the sound of many mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready and it's granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. From beginning to end of God's plan, marriage was the picture. Jesus is launching his campaign, if you will, to put it crudely, of his messiahship in the picture and then in the ceremony of marriage to make an extremely profound point that you and I have been invited to the marriage supper of the lamb that is to come. The problem is, is we don't have those clean clothes. We don't have those pure and white linens. We don't deserve them. We were given them to before, but we ran out in the mud puddles with them. We 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 tarnished everything that God had given us in perfection to be His bride, and so He says, "You've got your your wedding dress all dirty. There's a purification that's needed." So He said, oh, "Okay, I know how to purify myself. I'm going to go to these these six jars, and I'm going to make sure I'm clean." And I get to the door, and He says, "No, that doesn't work." This outward purification that we tend to get caught up in making sure we can dress ourselves up on the outside, impressing you and impressing you and making you okay with me and all these kinds of things or earning our way to atone for all of our wrongdoings. He says, you're just going to be washing your hand in these jars and you'll never get clean. Jesus desires that we find what we've been missing in him. He says, the way that you're going to get clean is not the thing that you use to wash on the outside. It's what you take to drink and allow it to be on the inside of you. You see what's going on here? The things that we do to purify ourselves on the outside, we're always going to be short of what we need. Jesus is our true purification. This was predicted in the book of Amos in the Old Testament in chapter 9. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Jesus launched his public ministry by this simple miracle to a private audience at a wedding because he knew it signified the arrival of the wedding invitation for all who would humbly receive it. So the answer to Jesus' question, what does this moment have to do with me? The answer is everything. So the question is, as we close this up, who are you in this story? Perhaps you're a blend of some of these characters, but maybe you're like Mary who was a little bit caught up in the moment, feeling responsible or feeling embarrassed or wanting some vindication, and so you express some anxiety. Jesus, you can do something about this. Maybe that's you. But it could also be you to to respond in trust and obedience once she realizes who she was talking to. Perhaps you're the groom in this story, and you're like, oh, man, Chickens are coming home to roost. Now, I'm going to be caught in this. I'm, I don't have the provisions of my own to get myself out of this jam. And it's all starting to breathe down on me. What if he knew that this was drying up? What if he knew that this was going to be a challenge for him? Do you, are you at that precipice, if you will, of thinking, I, I can't get myself out of this jam. Maybe it's time to make sure Jesus is at the ceremony. Maybe you're the caterer. Maybe you're missing it all. You're experiencing the, the benefits of it. This stuff tastes great. I have no idea how it got here, and I don't care. As long as the function keeps going, as long as I keep my job, as long as the bridegroom and uh, his family thinks I did a good job and I get invited to another one, I don't care as long as it's happening. You see how we can be very distant? We don't doubt necessarily that Jesus is who he is, but it doesn't necessarily penetrate my world. As long as I reap the benefits, maybe you're the disciples, Maybe you needed just that another layer of something to believe in. Maybe you started that journey because, hey, I'm all in. I mean, it seems legit. John the Baptist said, follow him and everything. So I'm all in. I do it. And then a little bit of doubt creeps in or you see him more and more for who he is. And you say, now I really believe. The next time you see him do something, now I really, really believe. And then it goes on and on and on. That's who we are. We don't have perfect faith. Who are you in this story? What is Jesus calling you to see in him? In what ways is he supplying complete, full jar joy in your life? Do you recognize it and do you receive it? Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for your word and we thank you for what you've done. Thank you for sharing with us the details. Thank you for gifting the minds of Faithful men and women who have studied these scriptures and help us connect all these dots, thank you, Lord, for giving your people eyes to see and ears to hear what your plan is for them. But, Lord, even though when we see these facts or we see these interesting takes on things, it's still incumbent on us to act obediently, to to follow you in faith. Not perfectly, trusting in your grace to cover our mistakes along the way, but still moving forward. Help us to be, Lord, in the audience of seeing you do some incredible things, things that defy logic, defy the human experience, defy the human mind, knowing that you're still working miracles. But, Lord, protect us from coveting them. Protect us from desiring them so much that we take our eyes off of what you've already done, signifying to us and to the world that you are the true Son of God. Help us to believe those things first and foremost and moving our life in a way that's uh, pleasing to you and to you only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.